Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series. Writer Jimmy McAlevey joined me on the evening of his full debut of Monsters, Dinosaurs, Ghosts at the Peacock Theatre. His short play, Monsters, Dinosaurs, was performed as part of the Abbey Theatre's Something Borrowed play readings in 2011. Born in West Belfast, Jimmy talks of opportunities, otherness, his apprenticeship as a playwright and how proud he is of the Abbey Theatre. Enjoy this podcast. So, Jimmy McAlevey, welcome. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for asking me. Jimmy, um, Monsters, Dinosaurs and Ghosts opens tonight on the Peacock stage. Um, Can you elaborate on the title? Uh, Because did the ghost just only come in to the title after the short play reading uh, in 2011? Because it was just called Monsters, Dinosaurs then. Were were the ghosts always there? Yeah, the ghosts always were there, yeah. Yeah. Um, Did it become more about the ghosts? It did in a way, yeah, it did. Because in the 20 minute piece, the 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 action of the drama was about one man getting the gun off another. Uh, and in the longer piece, piece, really, it's about the arc of the main character being sorry but not sorry in the first scene to becoming truly sorry uh, near the end. Uh, and that, that's in a speech to a ghost. Okay. Can you tell us the rough outline of the storyline? Okay, well, we have uh, a man uh, inappropriately named Nig um, who has been beaten up by hoods. He is uh, an ex-Republican, uh, ex-IRA man, provisional IRA. Uh, he has then got the land of a gun uh, and went out to the hoods who beat him up and threatened him with it and he is waiting for their revenge uh, and that was sorry I'll talk about that later maybe but uh, an old friend of his with whom he was active in the provisional IRA comes to visit him uh, to try and get him to join the dissidents along with him uh, and ultimately to get the gun from him when Nig refuses. Uh, And he does it in a particularly resourceful and horrible way. Uh, Nig is then visited by a kind of a shadowy gentleman who straddles Sinn Féin and the remnants of the provisional IRA who persuades him to penetrate Wee Joe's dissident cell to stop him from what he's doing. Along the way they meet a young man called L who is both dismissive of the provisional IRA and attracted to its mythology uh, and who has decided to devote his life to dissident republicanism. When I hear all that um, I I you failed to mention how funny it is. Oh, it's right. fiercely funny. Right. Um, were you sensitive about handling the kind of the sense of humour in, in, you know, or is that just a particularly Irish thing that we can smash up humour against tragedy and and, you know, and and reap the percussions and, and laugh away? I was worried about it at times and I made changes. It would be inauthentic to represent these men without a sense of humour. You have to remember that while 
what they were doing was horrific. It was also the most intensely wonderful crack for them, and they will say that, you know, they'll, they'll admit to that. And that's something that the characters share with a significance in a sense that they're trying to relive past glories in a sense. But the humour is also used as attack and defence and psychological self-defence. Each funny line is actually very carefully thought through for those reasons that I didn't want to... I didn't want it just to be funny. Uh, and that's why people have difficulty laughing at it. <laughs> well, I don't know if there is difficulty. I think you catch yourself laughing um, mm. because it's just the banter between yeah. the three of them. Um, because you certainly, in my mind, debunk kind of the the glory of it all. Do you know, mm. it seems to be a play that's just, the characters are, well, two of them anyway, are drenched in guilt. Mm-hmm. But they only feel guilt because, or at least guilt happens for them when they can no longer justify their actions. That's that's true, yes. That's true. I mean, that's one of the reasons why it's called, why, why Monsters is in the title. They're not monsters. They're not psychopaths. Is a monster a person that doesn't feel any repercussion or can... Yes. And part of the problem of our discourse, if I can use that word, about uh, political violence is that we use this kind of lexicon of uh, monsters. Now, what these men did was monstrous, but they weren't monsters. We don't actually have monsters wandering about. We have human beings with whom we can profoundly disagree. And we have another discourse in which they're described, where dissident Republicans are described as dinosaurs. And I'm not so sure if they are dinosaurs. Uh, I'm not so sure if they're extinct or indeed behind the times in, in any sense. We'll see, you know, we'll see. But I mean, I'm also thinking about, I'm also thinking about ISIS. Uh, I'm thinking about all the young British people who are queuing up to join ISIS. And I'm also thinking about how ISIS use a provoke that discourse uh, of words like monster or the favourite one at the minute appears to be barbarians. Uh, And they behead people specifically to incite that discourse of monstrousness, uh, of being barbaric, uh, which, you know, just plays entirely into their, their hands. Um, and, you know, pretty soon we'll find ourselves sitting around a table with these people, as we, as we always do. And that, I, I believe, that discourse of otherness only serves to perpetuate and fuel violence. So, so that vocabulary that's, you know, in the title... Uh, as well as all around us now, that 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 engages us, but it also keeps them at a distance because, you, as you say, they're not monsters; they're they're people, yeah. um, with different agendas to us. Um, 
when when we talk of the vocabulary around the troubles, yes, I'm not certain if you mentioned. Well, you know, the the, the word troubles, uh, their troubles, is mentioned in the play, but you very um, you legitimise it all, I suppose, by you know mentioning it's the war. <coughs> I suppose when I was growing up, it was all all about the troubles and terrorism. Hmm. But to even hear it, you know, that these these men were soldiers in the war, mm-hmm. it um, I suppose it gives a certain structure to it. Does that annoy you, that, that vocabulary, that very relaxed kind of, that distance that the, the troubles, you know, up north, it's far away from us here in the south? Well, I mean, it was one of the strategies for governments, particularly the British government, to absolve themselves of any responsibility, which was to say that there was something culturally specific uh, happening uh, in uh, the north of Ireland, stroke Northern Ireland, Um, that it was about uh, an outdated sectarian conflict that belonged to the 17th century. Uh, I mean, and it... While there were complicating issues of religion uh, at times, I mean, that's not what what it was about. I mean, it was about opposing ideologies, opposing political philosophies that were variously promoted and supported by other governments. But it's very handy uh, for us to try and contain it within that that vocabulary of... uh, terrorism, of evil, of... I mean, recently we we discovered that there was a, a British intelligence um, operation in the early 70s in Belfast at the time the movie The Exorcism came out, uh, planting evidence of satanic rituals in, in West Belfast, you know. I actually remember it at the time, you know, these finds of, you know, sacrificed cats and things. Uh, in order to somehow promote this idea that there was something satanic about about republicanism, I mean, I don't, I, I don't deny that if you had your wife or child or brother or father horrifically murdered, that you you have the right to consider that an evil act. What I'm saying is, in, in public discourse to use that vocabulary of, well, it's otherness, isn't it? Isn't that the, the term term that's used? That it proves very counterproductive. And also, in, I think, in, in Irish theatre, that, you know, starting with St. John Irvin and through O'Casey, where everybody with a political opinion in O'Casey is a vainglorious fool, um, which simply is not the case, you know. And the history of drama that represented the the troubles similarly, you know, where we where we gathered in a theatre and got to laugh at the vainglorious fools who who believed in political ideologies and killed for it. Uh, I thought was it not a truthful response and not a helpful response to what was going on outside those theatres. And what was going on inside those theatres when you were? born and reared in West Belfast, um, what were your influences? Did you always have the impulse, the need to write, or did you come from that kind of background? I had a lot of opportunity as a child, which uh, 
other people, you know, uh, maybe even 50 or 100 yards from me wouldn't, might not have had full. For instance, on one side of us, our neighbours, she was a teacher and he was a civil engineer and they had a housekeeper. On the other side, there was uh, a family and he was uh, a butcher and he had been shot dead by the British Army looking out of the doorway of his shop, which happened so many times, you know. Um, So it could have gone either way. Luckily for me, I didn't experience those traumas and I also had opportunity because of um, my family and a certain... uh, being of a certain economic level too, you know, we're, we're from actually quite a lower middle class area within West Belfast. There's a certain amount, certain amount of diversity in, in, in West Belfast that economically, you know. And so the steps then for you to take from, uh, to get to, you know, your Oxford ed- educated Trinity Queens, uh, what, what, what's the gap there? So you, you come from uh, well-to-do family at um, well-to-do might be might be an exaggeration. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, well, well-to-do. Come from a very good-looking family. Clearly. <laughs> 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 if this wasn't on your radio, we could, we could show. But what were the steps? Was it just that were you you were academically bright? Obviously. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like you know, some kids could run fast. Some kids were great at you know football and soccer and. Well, it just seems and, quite a leap to Oxford. Can you can you fill in the gap or? Well, I just took it into my head to go, um, and it was the more I look back on it now, the more I realise that it was politically influenced. I wanted to show the Brits that I was just as good, if not better, than them. Okay. Um, did did that occur to your family? I'm sure it did. Yeah, it's deeply, deeply embedded in our culture, you know, because we have a really quite a quite a relationship with British culture, you know, a very deep knowledge of it. We, I mean, we watch the, the British TV stations as well as RTE, you know, or read British broadsheets. And I mean, there is a sense that for a northern nationalist that there's part of you is that would quite like the imprimatur of the British establishment, in a sense, even if you're even if you're struggling against it and disapprove of it, there's a kind of a cultural father figure there, you know. So then you find yourself in Oxford and how, when you talk of this otherness, did you feel uh, different in Oxford? I guess that was the 80s, was it? It was, it was the late 80s, yeah, yeah. I did feel different uh, because I was different. Different uh, or, or unique? Uh, well, there weren't very many Irish people. Um, I said this before, English people are lovely. I really, really like them. They're very, very welcoming. And they have the loveliest wee pubs. Uh, and they love the Irish. But it's very, very difficult for them to think of you as anything other than Irish. They have a set of... I mean, you'll encounter the positive stereotypes much more often than you'll encounter the negative stereotypes. So, I mean, the positive stereotypes include being natural, wild, uh, a genius, uh, poetic, you know, all that nonsense. 
uh, and there are rewards offered for being that, you know, cultural and otherwise. But, but when you talk politics, does that ch- that changes their perspective of what you encountered? Well, the English left love it too, you know. I mean, half the English left would have loved to have been provost, you know. Well, I mean, it, 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 on occasion, certain personalities, it was a kind of fantasy for them. Um, that they could be similarly fighting the, the, the good fight, you know. Um, did you enjoy your time over there at that time? I did enjoy it, yeah, but I was actually very homesick. When I think about it, I was very homesick and I was quite lonely. Okay. Was it always your plan to go back and live and work in, in Belfast? Well, I didn't really have a plan, you know. I was 18 when I went and I was 21 when I left, you know. Uh, I used to work in the, as a labourer in the building sites during the holidays. Um, so... So when did you start writing plays? Because you, you write for stage, screen and radio. Were you always writing? Or, or, or you might not have had a plan, but... Were you, were you were you writing when you were on the the sites? No, like a lot of young people, uh, I thought you know being a writer was like a you know a kind of existential state <laughs> rather than a verb, you know. You know? Yeah. Um, so I eventually built built up the courage to to try it. I'm quite new to stage. I wrote quite a lot for radio. Uh, and some for screen, although I don't think I was really suited to it, to it, um, because I didn't write uh, cop shows or hospital things, you know. So I'm only really at, at, I'm only serving my apprenticeship as a playwright. And and do you think of yourself as a Northern Irish playwright, an Irish writer, or writer? All those all those tags. Well, you'd like to be all those things, wouldn't you? I did think. Are about you all those things? That's not really up to me. <laughs> that's up to. That's up to who commissions you. Who can see what you are, what you're allowed to write about. Um. What you're allowed to write about. Expand on that. Different places will be interested in different things, different aspects of your practice. So, for instance, a play like this, I couldn't get away, I wouldn't be able to get a play like this away in London. Not that I tried, but I wouldn't have tried. It would have been pointless. I mean, there was a time when the troubles were on that it would have gone on because it was sexy. You know, now it's just boring to them. Um... But it's also quite hard for them to see how a playwright from Northern Ireland ought to write about anything other than that, even though they might not be interested uh, in that, you know. So that's kind of what I mean. You're often told whether you're a playwright, a Northern Irish playwright or an Irish playwright or a playwright. Uh, And I suppose we're all playwrights. I can't help but think that they... They could certainly, I don't think they could in any way think that the, the play was boring. Um, but, you know, they always say that you, you're meant to write about what you know. Um, yeah. 
is this is this what you know? Like, is this? Do you think you'll continually mine that territory, or is there other stuff that you want to discover? And, and I, I mostly don't write about things like this. I mean, my last play, or rather, my play before this was about a young woman's first experience of depression. Um, but there is something uh, personal about it in that because I had never got... Sh- I was never shot <laughs> in the troubles. I was shot at, <laughs> uh, but I was never shot. And because I didn't lose a member of my family, thank God, there was a sense that I hadn't been affected by it or a sense that I I wasn't entitled to think that I had been affected by it. And the more I look back, the more I realise how it formed me and formed all my ideas about democracy, about freedom, about freedom fighting and how freedom fighting can tip over into something in an instant terribly horrific. How democracy can be so warped and threadbare and meaningless depending on where you draw the border. Um, And it was a very... culturally damaging as well as culturally interesting thing. I, what used to really frustrate me was that I was, we were being told that we were stuck in the 17th century and I was saying, no, we are forced to interrogate all these ideas that other people have naive faith in, that we understand better than anybody else about government, about democracy, about idealism, about conscience. Um, and then the Balkans blew up and it just seemed to be the same thing all over again and my fear is that we will put it all in a wee box marked Northern Ireland and forget about it and not learn any of the lessons of it the only lessons that the British government seem to have learned from it is (laughs) torture techniques which they passed on to the US government which were used on certain people in Guantanamo Bay. I mean, I can see the same discourse, the same vocabulary being trotted out again and again and again, as if they had learned nothing from from what happened here. That we are the home of civilization and fair-mindedness uh, and everything else, that, uh, and anything that attacks that is thuggish, evil, barbaric, uncivilised. There was a time, if you said that, for quite a long time, if you said something like that, you would be accused of being a fellow traveller. That was the phrase, a fellow traveller, that kept popping up in the press, as if you were to say that you needed to understand these people who committed these atrociously violent acts, you were somehow supporting them. Uh, thank God that censorship I hope has well I hope has lifted so when you write is that what you're trying to work out do you work something out when you write well I'm working it out 
for me and trying to put a kind of structure on it. But I mean, I'm also thinking with every every word, the audience, you know, and I'm in a dialogue with with them. Is that it's it's is that important to you that let that you, legacy comes up an awful lot in monsters, dinosaurs, ghosts? Is that is that is that your legacy? Is that what you're trying to keep in our conscience and in you know in print and alive, so that it isn't just boxed away? You know, when you go back to the sources of what makes you do something. They're hard to find. It's a bit like asking a dog how it hunts, you know. But it's got something to do with the fact that there is that there's a lie in the culture that you want to put on stage and expose. That you want to tell the truth about something. And in the end, you know, all, all I'm doing is Although I've I ranted on here and made statements, all I'm doing is trying to ask questions. But I'm on stage, but I'm trying to phrase them in a way that's that's honest. You're a Northern Irish writer. Do you expect a certain reaction from a Southern audience? I do, yeah, I do, and that's unfair of me. Um. I mean, I'm in this business because an audience is entitled to think whatever they like, and it's unfair of me. That's the exciting thing. You don't know what they're going to think, so it's unfair of me to presuppose what an audience might think and how they might react. What's what? What has the experience been like for you? Oh, it's wonderful. I. Well, the Stuart Parker Trust were instrumental in this because they sent me to Anna McCarrig, you know, the Tyrone Guthrie Centre, uh, along with five other writers. And Brian Delaney came up from the Abbey. Brian's brilliant. Brian goes everywhere. Um, and he asked us to send in our plays. So I sent him in a play and he read it and he gave it to Aideen Howard, who was a literary director at the time. Uh and she was interested in it and commissioned me to do a 20-minute piece and then this piece evolved from that. So as with all theatres, what they're interested in doing is developing a relationship with you and getting to know who you are and how you work and, you know, how well you work with them, you know. Um, I'm very, very proud of the Abbey, I have to say. Um, I'm very proud of what what they've done in reaching out to writers in the north. Even if the even if the subject matter that they're getting back mightn't be, you know, a guaranteed hit with their, their audiences. Very brave decisions there that I think come out of very well considered policy. Well, I wish the run all the best. Um, and for you to enjoy opening night tonight. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks, Jimmy. <laughs>